guest today is an old friend. Well, not that old, but a um, moderate length friend, let's say, but a very good one, Stephen Bodson from Red Intelligence. We've had Stephen on the podcast before uh, and have talked with him lots of times uh, in other professional settings, often because there's something about in some time, in some cases, Venezuela, in other cases, so the, the Andean region in general that we just don't understand. And Stephen is one of the most knowledgeable and astute observers of um, all of these topics that we know of. And he's been super generous with his time, both on and off the podcast. So we're thrilled to have him here today to get to talk a bit more about Venezuela, which is kind of always in the news, but sometimes things are a little more active than others. And it seems like now is a pretty active time. So we're thrilled to have Stephen here to join us. Stephen, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here and to speak with you. And of course, the comment that, that I'm generous with my time, uh, but I think it's a projection. You folks are always kind with yours and, and I always appreciate that. Well, um, maybe we can put our heads together uh, a little bit here to figure out some of this Venezuela stuff, but I was hoping you could just start us off with kind of an overview because I think I'm probably more informed than the average person, less informed than some of our listeners, but it seems like there's now such a complicated structure of claimants who are trying to use the arbitration process or the court systems to get recoveries. And can you give us just sort of an overview of what's going on and, and who these folks are? Sure. So, so I'm focused on situations happening in U.S. courts, and that's where most of the action is happening these days. Um, I know that there are a few cases in Portugal, in London. I'm not going to get too much into those, even though some of them do involve significant amounts of money. Uh, I, I think that the New York ones are where things are really interesting right now, New York and Delaware. So basically, um, there have been a lot of people who have lost money to odd actions by the Venezuelan state over the years, starting really as far back as 1998, but it really picked up in 2006 with this wave of nationalizations that happened there, really kept going until about 2012. And then there was a bond default in 2017. So you have a lot of companies that owned stuff in Venezuela who, where, who got their assets nationalized and went to international arbitration. Generally, those cases have are pretty much over. Uh, there are a few still going on, but most of the big ones came to awards years ago and at this point have gotten recognized in the United States and are judgments. And so these are these are very big. Some of them, the biggest one is in the hands of ConocoPhillips, a big U.S. oil company that lost a big project in Venezuela and won an $8 billion award at the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID. Uh, and that $8 billion award has now accumulated interest and is worth over $10 billion. So that's that's real money. Uh, there are quite a few claims. There are around a billion, one to $2 billion. And then there are a lot of smaller ones that are still amounts of money that in any other country would be would be shocking, you know, $200, 500000000 um, 
So that's where you've got the, the arbitration awards. And then there are more recently these bondholders who uh, Venezuela went on a borrowing binge from about 2007 till 2016 and ended up with somewhere around $60 billion, $70 billion of debt in, owed by the sovereign and owed by its state oil company, PDVSA, and a couple of other entities. And those bonds pretty much all defaulted in 2017. So we're now almost six years on and some big hedge funds have accumulated big positions and have sued. Uh, some of those lawsuits have actually come to a judgment and are now uh, ready for execution. And some of the other ones, uh, there are a lot of holders who are looking right now and trying to decide whether to sue. Because as you know, uh, you have six years under New York law to sue anything that if you take longer, any debts that are older than that, uh, your your opponent can say that it was outside the statute of limitations and and can can avoid paying forever. So those are the so, two bodies right now. Stephen, welcome. And thank you so much for talking to us about this, because I, I have to confess that even though I followed Venezuela quite closely, like Mark, now it's just utterly confusing. And I'm confused about a very basic question, which is, given the size of the arbitration claims and the fact that some bondholders have judgments and the fact that there surely is but a limited pool of assets eventually, given how bad the situation in Venezuela has gotten, are all the bondholders who didn't sue until the end out of luck screwed no next question no it's um the uh so so no the no they're not the um it really depends the the value of assets in venezuela depends a lot on what happens in the future in that country and also what happens with the energy transition and the continued demand for oil because venezuela there's no question it has tremendous amounts of oil it has you know, it might have a trillion dollars more of oil in the ground, right? That you could produce profitably uh, before the world stops using oil. And if that's the case, then sure, there's plenty of money for everybody, right? Um, they, uh, it, there's also a lot of other stuff in Venezuela. There's great bauxite reserves. There's great, um, there's coltan, which is this, these basically these rare earth metals that get used in a lot of electronics. There is a lot of hydropower. There's huge tourism opportunities. Obviously, none of this is being tapped right now. So most people who think about the future of Venezuela are not thinking about seizing assets and selling them off, but rather trying to get equity in uh, some kind of future of Venezuela, whether that's some kind of GDP warrant, which you discussed last week and uh, we all know is um is, is problematic, but there are certainly ways to do oil warrants. Venezuela has used those in the past and it worked. It's also possible for Venezuela to uh, privatize a lot of its, especially the non-oil industries. There's a lot more controversy about whether and when to privatize the oil industry, but the the non-oil stuff and the, and the oil field services, things like things like um, ship companies that, that uh, 
service the oil fields, the, the shallow water oil fields, these things all got nationalized in the 2000s and immediately fell into disrepair and, and became quite useless. And so there is a huge amount of, of value sitting there waiting to be restored. In, in, and you could, you could definitely see some of these things being turned over to um, either to bondholders themselves or to some kind of a trust that would uh, pay off bondholders over time. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could structure it. And, and people have certainly speculated on this. Um, people who who think about this stuff far more than 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 I can, but but yeah, there's there's money there. But the single biggest thing, I think, the thing that you're you're getting at here is that there is a foreign asset. Venezuela has a big foreign asset in the United States, and that is Citgo Petroleum, which is a refining company, and it's got three big refineries. They're running great these days. That thing has uh, Venezuela accumulated those assets along with some pipelines and. And this big brand, Citgo, which if you're in the eastern United States, you've seen the gas stations. If you've ever watched American baseball, you can see the uh, at Fenway Park, there's a big Citgo sign looming over the, the field. Well, Citgo is owned by 100% by the state of Venezuela through its state oil company. And that asset is worth, different people give different numbers. The latest numbers I've been hearing is in the range of 10 to $15 billion dollars. Uh, given current valuations on American refining assets. So that's something. It's certainly not enough to pay everybody off, but it's enough to pay off a bunch of these quick quick actors who who showed up early and, and have been trying to, uh, to get paid before any other kind of restructuring. And, and I think, so maybe this is a good place to start. And I have a bunch of questions about the, the attempt to to seize the ownership interest in Sitco, but maybe I can ask sort of two of them before we get into some of the details of the upcoming auction that's been scheduled of those shares. So um, one is just a just kind of a conceptual question I have been struggling with. I don't. I confess I don't understand the answer. So there's this set of PDVSA bonds that were due in 2020 and that were backed by. Um, a pledge of collateral of not the the ultimate U.S. parent company. It's the ultimate U.S. parent company whose shares are going to be auctioned in Delaware, but by the shares of one of the intermediate holding companies. And, and there's in particular a 51% interest, I think, that's being litigated in New York. And that litigation is, the outcome of that is unknown. So I'm wondering how that uncertainty is affecting efforts to value and attach the shares of the ultimate U.S. parent. And I'm, I'm just going to leave myself to that one question for now and tell me if it's not clear, but I, you've got that people are supposed to be bidding over the shares of the parent company when, you know, am I wrong to think that if things turn out badly for PDVSA, the parent could wind up owning a minority stake in Citgo? Right. Well, so so the bidders know about this, right? And of course, bondholders, the, the holders of the 2020 bonds, uh, this secured bond that it's um, secured by it's 50.1% of um, of Citgo holding. Yeah, so that those bondholders certainly are aware of this auction happening. And we've reported that those bondholders have already been in talks with um other players in this whole situation. And we it's a little bit unclear to me exactly who their counterparty is, but we've 
heard from various sources that there have been talks. In short, those bondholders are going to are probably going to get paid something, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not a, a bond analyst. I'm not going to say, you know, are they going to get paid par, par par plus accrued? I don't know. I don't know what the settlement is going to end up being, but certainly if this thing sells, uh, I, people have been telling me for years that that they assumed that if there was an auction, then um, part of that would have to involve paying off this bond, um, and that that would just be at this point. I think that the uh, par plus accrued is on the order of two billion dollars. Uh, so it's a lot of money, but on the but if you're bidding for an asset that is worth ten to fifteen billion, you know that just cuts two billion dollars off of um, off of the amount that goes to these uh, these other parties in the in the auction. So I mean, and certainly somebody buying the the whole company can afford to to pay that as part of their purchase price. Okay, great. So that that helps clarify that. And if I if I can ask a uh, my second sort of broad question before we get into some of the details, you point out quite sensibly that there's a ton of potential assets sitting under the ground in Venezuela. And as from what I understand, which is quite quite little, but I, I think there have to be fairly massive investments in um, restoring PDVSA to uh, a credible operating entity in Venezuela and massive investments in the infrastructure needed to get that oil out of the ground. And then, of course, you got to you got to sell it and refine it and all of that. And uh, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on how a potential loss of control over Citco is going to complicate the ability for Venezuela to monetize its domestic assets. So in theory, Venezuela shouldn't be affected that much by a loss of control of Citgo because Citgo is physically designed to work most efficiently with the kind of oil that you get from Venezuela. Basically, they get this heavy crude uh, the, of the type that comes out of Venezuela. Also, you can also get it from Colombia. You can get it from, I, I, I don't know the, the industry as well as I probably should, but I think I've heard you can also get some from, from Russia and from Canada. There are various places that produce this heavy crude, but that the the real advantage to Citgo is that it can buy this stuff, which is relatively cheap on the market, right? From Venezuela, um, because it's cheap because not all that many refineries can handle it. Citgo can handle it, so it can it can buy the stuff relatively cheap and then turn it into full price fuel and make a lot of money. That's that's the theory behind Citgo. So whether or not Venezuela owns it, I don't think it matters that much. But uh, but there certainly are a lot of unknowns, and and sure, everything you said is correct. That the investment needs in Venezuela are absolutely immense. Just you know, a single uh, big pipeline can be hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And nobody wants to put that kind of money in Venezuela right now. Uh, there's just there's just it's dangerous, and um, nobody knows what's going to happen to their to their investment, right? With with Maduro there, and. Um, and you know, even if there weren't sanctions, and there are sanctions currently, and and there's no easy path to ending U.S. sanctions until uh, until Maduro is gone as well. So that said, there are I, I've heard rumors of plenty of oil executives showing up in Caracas recently. Um, everybody who goes there tells me, oh, I saw so and so and so and so at the the fancy hotels, and you know, these are people from big oil companies, not necessarily from the U.S. But there are a lot of, as you know, a lot of other oil companies in the world that don't have a lot of U.S. operations or, or interests. So 
there there are interests in getting in getting Venezuela back going sooner. And since the Russia invasion of Ukraine, the United States has definitely had more interest in restoring its ties with Venezuela. It's been really tricky to kind of break the break the political knot of uh, like how do you unwinding sanctions is very hard uh, politically. So I don't know exactly uh, how that how that is going to play out over the next couple of years. But there are a lot of people who want it to happen who want. Venezuela to become more of an oil producing company, uh, country and to have more of a relationship with the United States. And these are people in Venezuela, people in the United States. A lot of people want it to happen. And so I think at some point people are going to figure it out. Um, the, there is a presidential election in Venezuela in 2024, uh, assuming that goes ahead. And, and it seems pretty likely that there will be an election. How, how free and fair it is is very much up in the air. Uh, and the outcome of that election or the aftermath of that election could be a really good opportunity for some realignment um, with the United States and, and allowing more, more investment to go into Venezuela. So it's, un, it's unknown at this point uh, what's, what's, what's going to happen there. And, you know, personally, I'm, I follow very closely the energy transition, and I think I'm more pessimistic than a lot of Venezuela analysts about this future, because I think, um, Sure, oil prices are very high right now, and there's a lot of investment happening right now. But um, you know, there's also a lot of investment happening in alternatives, and you know, we'll see. We'll see how much money can actually be pulled out of the ground there. So, Stephen, given that this is the direction in which you've taken us, I'm wondering if you have a sense of what the rumors are or if you have direct information as to the thinking of the US government. Just hearing you talk and reading some of your writing about the plethora of claims against Venezuela and the importance of Venezuela to the United States. I mean, we, we are able to impose sanctions on them of the type that we do in part because they are important to national security and they are in close proximity. It, it is just hard for me to imagine, although I should learn from the history of imperialism, that, that the US government would be comfortable with just a free-for-all in terms of claimants taking all of the current assets and all of the future assets. I just, I don't see that happening. I see something else happening, but other than hopefully not, not utter chaos for many more years, but people must be making calculations and prices must be moving as a function of what they think the US government is going to do. Now, I realize we have, we have elections coming and it's a completely different ball game if Trump is elected uh, versus Biden. But I, I'm curious as to your sense. Periodically, uh, Mark and I both get calls uh, from very excited investors who say, did you hear, did you hear the, the US is going to allow uh, a restructuring and shepherd it through? And I'm like, what? Where did you hear that from? And then, of course, it turns out to be bullshit. Uh, but 
I'm wondering what you're thinking since you're you you are so level-headed relative to most crazy people. Well, thanks. I uh, level-headed about some things. Um, wait, wait but, level-headed compared to most crazy people, or just like <laughs> level-headed period? <laughs> level-headed period. But if you're betting on Venezuela, I mean, you know, Mark and I just. Uh, recently talked about Cuba in one of our episodes that will air soon. And you got to be thinking this could go in the direction of the Cuban debt so, so very easily. Well, okay. I don't know enough about Cuban debt, but I, I can say that the U.S. would love to have some kind of an orderly restructuring. Yes, no question. but. Um, there are various policy interests around this, and um, it was a real surprise to me, and I think to a lot of people, that the U.S. Sanctions Office, the OFAC, basically issued a letter in May of 2023 saying that they would let the Citgo auction go ahead. This is this is I, I didn't I didn't explain this so clearly earlier, but yeah, to be clear, the there's the the big claimants, uh, especially these arbitration claimants, but also some of the bondholders have actually gone to Delaware, where the where PDV Holding, uh, which is Venezuela or Petavesa's big asset in the United States, they've gone to Delaware, where Petavesa PDV Holding is based, and they uh, have gone through a very long series of lawsuits. Uh, the lead case uh, started in 2017 and has been to the Supreme Court. Um, didn't get cert there, but it did. Uh, one of the parties did try to try to get cert at uh, the Supreme Court. It's um, It's been to various appeals courts many times. And um, at this point, it's pretty clear that some of these claimants are going to be able to seize PDVSA assets um, uh, either because they have a claim against Pedavesa or because they convinced the court that Pedavesa is an alter ego of the Republic. So I, I think you've covered this before, and it's something that you know would take a very long time to get into all the details. But yeah, so there is a big case happening right now in the United States, and the U.S. Sanctions Office gave the go-ahead essentially for this foreclosure sale on Citgo, uh, Citgo's ultimate holding company there in, in Delaware, PDV Holding. Uh, and that was a big surprise because U.S. foreign policy people have said again and again uh, that they want to preserve Venezuelan assets for a future democratic government. They want an orderly restructuring for all creditors. And, you know, I, I haven't um, got any on record comment from uh, from the people who are excluded from this, who are basically, you know, big institutional bondholders. But, um, you know, let, let's. I think we can assume that they're not thrilled about the idea of Citgo getting sold off while they're waiting patiently for a proper restructuring. Um, and, and you know, they they have tens of billions of dollars of bonds, right? So they don't really have any use for a Citgo, a Citgo sale because assuming they're not first in line, they're not going to get very much of their claim satisfied that way. So they would really rather a real restructuring where everybody gets the same haircut, everybody gets the same weird more warrants toward the future, if there is a sale of Citgo, everybody gets a piece of it. They would love that. But the way it's working right now, it's been a long time. And, you know, the second, I think it was, this, uh, no, the Third Circuit, I think it was, said in one of their decisions in favor of this um, these claimants in Delaware, 
that every day that goes by is a day that a U.S. judgment is going on for unfulfilled. Uh, this this auction needs to go ahead, and the judge in Delaware has taken that. That I thought that's not an exact quote, but that's essentially what they said. And the judge there has has taken that and um, and run with it. He's this this auction is happening. It's I mean it's it, the the launch date is now passed. Um, there is there is a whole series of deadlines now set up over the next few months and tentative a tentative schedule for a um, final sale hearing. I think next July, if I if I remember correctly. And just, I, I want to move us in just a, a second to talk about one of the other big uh, developments that's uh, sort of uh, going on and that's heating up uh, as we speak, which is the, the litigation involving YPF. But am I right that the where things stand with that auction now is that Crystal X, the Kind of the creditor who drove most of this action is going to get paid in full first in the queue. And then there's three or four other creditors who get to sort of belly up to the trough after that. And then do we have a sense of how much is going to be left over? Because there's going to be the, the universe of remaining claims is, is going to be enormous. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's more than two or three. Um, there, there's um the 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 bellying up to the trough has been started a few years ago. Um, just to be clear, Crystal X, yeah, it's this um, bankrupt Canadian mining company. Their assets in Venezuela were expropriated. They won an a, an arbitration award that was at the time very big, one point four billion, but uh, with interest and whatnot, uh, has grown quite a bit. They got some of it paid off. There was a little bit of a settlement, and they got some paid off. But uh, the last public statement that I heard them say in court was a couple of years ago, and they said that they were owed a billion, around a billion. And that's continued to grow with interest since then. I don't know exactly what the dollar amount is. But yeah, after that, there are there are others. And in fact, the judge in Delaware just recently, a few weeks ago, uh, issued an order saying how he would uh, decide seniority of these claims, because there are a lot of claims already registered in Delaware and more seem to come every week. And what he decided was that it would be ranked in the order of when plaintiffs filed successful motions for attachment, successful motions for a writ of attachment. So that means that if you filed a motion that failed, then forget it. You know, you you go you go back. You have to start over again and you go to the back of the line. But basically there's this list of, of claimants on there who started filing their cases as early as 2019, shortly after Crystal X came in and, and showed that there was this alter ego issue. Um, and some of them have actually been litigating this whole time. A couple of them have, have really been actively trying to push this forward. Some of them have just sat on their claim, like uh, ConocoPhillips with that mammoth $10 billion claim. It registered that in Delaware, I think in 2019. And if you look at the docket, it just is registration of foreign judgment and then case closed. And there was nothing until a couple of weeks ago. So this, uh, they just sat there hoping that they would be able to get seniority because they had registered their claim. But because they didn't pursue a writ of attachment and litigate this, uh, they're actually going to be pretty far down the queue. But yeah, there are a bunch of other claimants who have litigated it. And without getting into too much detail, because I know on audio, it's uh, it can get really confusing really quickly. Um, 
there are, uh, I mean, at Red, we, we've come up with a list of, I think about 15 that uh, have have actually put in, you know, reasonable sounding claims that, that looks like they're gonna get onto this list. Um, and the deadline to get on the list is uh, in about a month, well, I shouldn't say that. The deadline to get on the list is in September of 2023. So we see claims coming in. We're recording this in August and uh, claims are flowing in right now into Delaware. And we'll see um, how many of these writs actually get, uh, the, the motions for writs get filed or, or writs get issued uh, before then. Um, and just to be 100% technically correct, I'm not a lawyer here, and I know that people listening to this who are lawyers are probably pulling their hair out about some of this, but uh, I I refer to writs. The fact is the court hasn't issued very many writs. It issued a writ to Crystal X, and I don't think it's issued any others uh, because of this whole sanctions issue and because it wants to line things up correctly and issue the writs in the correct order. So it's um, a, it's basically making a an on deck list or a, you know, a batting, a batting list for, um, you know, who's going to be, who's going to get writs, but I'm going to just going to call them writs because that's, uh, it's a little too much to say every time. I like the writs. I mean, th this strikes me as potentially a sovereign debt restructuring, unlike any we have seen, because, People who invest in sovereigns are used to relatively equally shared interests with, you know, occasionally a hedge fund grabbing a greater share. Uh, but the people who go first here are not only going to get all of their claim, but they're going to get all of the past due interest compounded or however they're going to calculate it. I mean, it's just so everybody else has got to be furiously lobbying. <laughs> this is like if you wanted to to draw a diagram an example of what bankruptcy is supposed to accomplish and like why you want bankruptcy. This is what something like what you would do, right? It's 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 a beautiful lesson <laughs> in that exactly. This is this is why there is a stay of litigation in commercial bankruptcy and. Uh, the people who have promoted the idea of sovereign uh, a sovereign bankruptcy system, I think, are are going to use this forever as their as their case study. Uh, yeah, it's it's a mess, and and in fact, you know, part of this is in fact commercial. And in a normal world, Pedavesa would be in bankruptcy, right? But but of course, the center of main interest for Pedavesa is in Venezuela, and and from the people I've spoken to, there's no real law in Venezuela that allows bankruptcy of a state enterprise. So you can't have a bankruptcy of PDVSA. So even though it's a commercial entity, um, there's no real way for it to declare bankruptcy. So it's, it's you know, we'll see. Maybe maybe one of its U.S. holdings will uh, try to try to go into bankruptcy court in the U.S. or something. You know, let, let's see. There, it's endless surprises in this stuff. But yeah, what you said about the, the um, payouts, it's true. And, you know, we've talked about this before. You know, we tried to, um, I, I, I tried to popularize the word rush-ins uh, years ago in this case, because, you know, we know about holdouts, who are the ones who refuse to take part in restructuring and sit there and sit there and sit there and keep waiting and eventually get paid. But in this case, it was the, the holders who rushed in ahead of the activation of collective action clauses, ahead of any kind of uh, 
restructuring and were able to try to get paid in full. It, none of them have gotten paid in full yet. So, you know, this story isn't written. We don't know what's going to happen over the next year or two. Um, but yeah, it is certainly looking good for some of these, some of these holders. And um it's it's it is, it's it's certainly not the the usual um, you know, equality of treatment of, of creditors. It's not, it's not what you expect, but you know, it's it's a sovereign. Things are things are weird, right? You know that better than I do. Well, it's definitely chaotic, and I, I do hope for the Venezuelan people that 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 the global community does does not just give up on them as it seems like many countries have at this stage. So, but uh, I I want us to get to YPF, uh, although I can't leave the. One thing that I heard, and maybe I'll just toss it out, and I heard this from an investor who said, that because they were getting panicked about the statute of limitations running and the prescription clauses, and most people are, are confused about what the prescription clause does and what the statute of limitations does. And they said, we're just telling our lawyers to sue, to file a claim so that we don't get screwed because we're very worried that like in at least one of the Argentine cases, the time limitation will run and we really will get zero. Are you, is there a lot of um, concern or maybe this investor is just a panicky investor who got burned with Argentina? I am not going to give anybody legal advice or financial advice. So I'm no, I don't know if this person is just being panicky. I think that they are, I, 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 um, I don't think that they're crazy. Uh, at this point, both the Maduro government in Caracas and the uh, U.S. recognized National Assembly government, uh, which we used to say that Juan Guaido government, Juan Guaido is now gone, but the, what's left of this kind of weird U.S. recognized entity, um, both of them have now said that they will voluntarily toll the New York state law statute of limitations, and they will not use the statute of limitations as a defense. Um, the Maduro government, I don't remember exactly what the terms they put on this was, were, but it was essentially an unconditional statement that for a while at least, they they won't use this um, statute of limitations defense. And just recently, the US recognized body passed an, a, a measure saying that uh, they also would not use the statute of limitations defense until at least 2028. So that's five years from when we're recording this. Um, I don't know if those, I, I actually wanted to ask you how much uh, faith an investor could put in that because um, these are I don't think that they've changed the indentures I don't think that they've uh, you know they've signed any kind of a contract with anybody this is just a public and notorious statement really by these governments is that something that you would advise people to count on or would you tell them to go sue <laughs> well, so, I'm going to have to I, I would disclaim any advice also. So it's funny to me, this question is a nice illustration of like the different 
the answers that I might give in a law school class compared to the answers that I suspect lawyers uh, might choose to give to clients. Because, you know, I, in a law school class, we maybe would talk about, you know, what purposes the statute of limitations is supposed to serve, and it really is there to protect the defendant and maybe a little bit to protect courts from hearing claims based on stale evidence, but not really. And so if you've got a clear statement by some entity recognized as the government, it doesn't have to be formal, but a clear statement uh that says we're not gonna raise the statute of limitations defense. That ought to toll the statute. It is certainly that it deals with any concern we have for the defendant. And you know, we don't really care that much about courts hearing stale evidence anyway, but one way or the other, these cases are based on clear bond documents where the facts are established. There's no like the passage of time doesn't affect anything here. So like we'd think it through and be like, well, you could have a high degree of confidence in this case that you were safe in waiting. And yet, ah, investors really don't like uncertainty. And this is a uncertainty that has like a high variability, right? Like your claim is worth, you know, whatever you get for it in a restructuring or it's worth nothing. So I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if, we do see a bunch of lawsuits being filed, even though, like from the armchair, I kind of think that there's a very high probability. Assume, I haven't read these statements, but assuming they're clear and that the you know the National Assembly actually um, validly enacted one, um, you know, it seems to me that there's a high probability that would toll the statute. I don't know. Me too. You might think differently, but. You are right about the law school class thing, but that is that is assuming that some future government is not going to raise claims of the sort uh, that, oh, yeah, that person wasn't really representing the National Assembly or this government was corrupt and not properly in place and was not a recognized government. And yeah, I can. It's been as well we've seen all this. Right. Yes, yes. So, yes. yes, it's the uncertainty is uncomfortably high. Sorry, I didn't I oh, interrupted oh. you. Go ahead. It's it's not only high but uh, I, I the other reality is and based on uh, the beautiful articulation that Stephen gave, there are some people who are currently really pissed with their lawyers because their lawyers told them to wait. There are some other people who are really happy with their lawyers because their lawyers said, rush to the courthouse. And if if my client is really pissed with me that I screwed up last time, I think I'm just going to file the case now because I, I, I took a good gamble, but I was wrong. But the client doesn't want to hear that I, I took a good gamble. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to in my head, I'm playing out the amount of money that many of the big institutional investors in particular have lost on this. Ordinarily, they would have sold. My impression is many of them did not sell in the Venezuelan case. And now are looking, I mean, they don't want some future oil warrant that will pay out in 
you know, 2090 or something like that, even though everybody keeps talking about how much wealth there is under the ground in Venezuela. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty. But, you know, now we're doing lawyer sociology, which is which is fun to do. But uh, well, and we I should do more of it. <laughs> I could add a little bit of lawyer math, too, which is that the uh, one of the one of the concerns that people had about suing early is that some of these bonds are paying interest of, I think, as high as 13%. I think the highest is 13 point something. So, you know, if if you if you sue and, you know, until recently, the um, the interest you got on a federal judgment was essentially zero. Now it's around 5% because it's basically the federal Fed funds rate, funds rate uh, for the prior week. So, you know, it's, it's, it's up to 4%, 5% these days. Uh, that's still a lot lower than 13. And so if you sit there and keep accruing interest and you think that you can ever get paid that, then great, right? You're going to make a lot. But if you, uh, if, if, if yeah, so there's a lot of calculations back and forth, um, not only the, the political question and the, the legal question, but also this, this question of how much uh, kind of how you how you do the risk adjustment where the, where the money comes in. So I, I I've seen some funds um, that waited a few years before suing, and um, in fact one just showed up in Delaware, a uh, big hedge fund from New York showed up with. Um, I, I I'm pretty sure that we said that we that they said their uh, their total claim right now is 1.7 billion, and that's in large part because they about half of that was was interest that they built up over that time um, waiting. So, yeah, there's a lot of money to be made there. So maybe right. we can. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, I spoke over you. I, I'm I'm just feeling guilty that we wanted to talk about YPF and we used so much of our time about Venezuela because it's just such a damn morass, quicksand, whatever term. Just people it, it, gonna it, lose jobs on this. Yeah, if you want to talk YPF, I'm happy to. I think it's. A relatively much simpler situation. It's shocking just in the size of the claim, but um, but you know you could also wait and talk to somebody who's a real expert on Argentina about that. I mean, I went to the court, I went to the to, to the hearing, but um, it's. Uh, could you, know. you give us an? Uh, could you give us a sense? I mean, y- you you're very modest, but uh, I've been reading your stuff on this, and you you are very clear in terms of uh, the story that's going on. So I'd love to hear the story of what's going on with YPF and in part because it seems somewhat similar to Venezuela Venezuela in in that Argentina seems in deep doo-doo again uh, and with the GDP warrant claims going into the many billions and the YPF claims going into the many tens of billions too and them still having a giant debt stock I don't know what's going to happen and now the bondholders are no longer just going to have their nice polite little negotiations they're going to have to deal with these claimants who are no longer represented by the usual suspects. Okay, I threw in about 17 questions in there for the story of YPF that I'm hoping you'll tell us. Okay, well, thanks. So 
Argentina nationalized YPF in 2012. This was a an oil company that had been a state oil company. It was privatized, and Argentina, uh, under the government of um, Nestor Kirchner, said it's time we need to we need to take this back. This company is being run very badly by its foreign owners. The uh, there are tremendous dividends being paid out that are sapping this company's ability to provide energy security for Argentina. Uh, the money is going off to Spain, to Repsol, and to this, this wealthy family, politically connected family from Argentina that, that owned part of it. And so they, they took over 51% of the shares in 2012. According to the bylaws of YPF, Argentina should have at that time tendered for the remaining shares, and it didn't do it. And Though the holders of those remaining shares, some of them were held by Repsol and some were held by this rich family, the Eskenazi family. Um, those shares ended up getting, um, well, the shares or claims related to the shares basically ended up getting held mostly by this one big litigation funder in London called Burford. Um, and Burford uh, bought a big part of the claim for 15 million euros. And they're lined up to get, according to some reports, 70% of the um of the payout of any of whatever happens from all the litigation as a result of this. And after years of litigation, uh this year, a judge in New York decided that um and at a pretty pre at a preliminary stage, I think it was the summary judgment stage, um decided that. Argentina did in fact uh, mess up. They should have tendered. She let YPF walk away from this case without owing anything. So that was good for YPF. YPF at this point has a market value of less than 10 billion and it was being sued for more than 10 billion. So that was you know, a, real, a real concern for YPF. Um, but Argentina, she said, they in fact did owe and the amount that they owed, she, she said in a... Uh, a note in the court docket was somewhere between eight and 16 billion. Um, that's a lot. That's a big number. 16 billion, according to the defendants, would be the biggest judgment ever from the Southern District of New York. So it's, it's real money. And the defendants, Argentina, have been fighting very hard to try to uh, lower that number as much as they can. So there was just a hearing in July, and that uh, it was a two and a half day trial, and it was a damages trial. It was really not about whether Argentina um, owed this money, it was about how much money it owed. And so Argentina's lawyers were there essentially trying to argue down the, the dollar amount to just under 5 billion, which is still a large number. <laughs> And and um, but but that's their best case scenario is essentially four point nine two billion was the number that they were giving. That was if they get given zero percent uh, interest on this claim over the past um, uh, whatever it is eleven years, um, while the the other side wants six between six percent and eight percent, saying eight percent even would be would be very generous. They should be getting higher than eight percent, but Argentine law limits them to eight percent. Um, so. Argentina wants to pay zero, the other side wants 8%. And then there's a lot of debate about exactly what the tender offer should have been um, based on 
the formula that was written into YPF's bylaws. So that is essentially the state of play right now for YPF. Um, and so YPF is off, it's fine, but Argentina, yeah, it's gonna owe a lot of money one way or another. Yeah, the range of damages that uh, is being discussed is really kind of mind blowing here. Um, you know, where they're fighting about five, not quite five to over 16 billion sort of. Um, and of course it's sort of of a piece with Argentina where just it's a, a, amazing how long these fights can go on, um, very classically Argentina. I'm hoping though, Stephen, that we can persuade you to maybe come back when a little more uh, has developed in the case. We've taken up so much of your time already. Um, but as always, we were so thrilled that you were willing to join us and um, so excited that we, uh, when we get to talk to you. So um, uh, thank you so much. And we'll look forward to continuing this conversation. Well, thank you. You're both so generous with uh, with your thoughts and, and information and and anything that I can do to uh, to help out um, explaining a little bit of this. Um, it's my pleasure. Um, if if people are interested in knowing more, of course, Red Intelligence, unfortunately for for the students in the crowd, it's subscriber only. But uh, you know, people can subscribe. We we we're I'm basically writing this stuff every week. The Venezuela legal updates uh, we're putting out constantly. Just trying to keep people up to date on these because it is, it's a mess and um, it's not going to get cleaned up anytime soon. So yeah, I, I, I it's not how I expected to spend my, my journalistic career, but uh, you know, I'm glad to, glad to help out where, where I can. And I really appreciate all the thoughts that you're able to provide as well. I see a book coming. I see a book coming, but thank you so much, Stephen. And we want you back.